please do join me in taking out your Bibles once again and turning to Psalm chapter 62. Psalm 62. It's wonderful not only to read the Psalms, hear the Psalms read, but indeed uh, to sing the Psalms. Um, It's wonderful. As we go to God's word, let's go to him once again in prayer. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. So Father, we ask now that your word and spirit would transform your people so that we would be a people who are different when we walked out, when we walk out the door than when we walked in the door. Father, be pleased to use your word as applied by your spirit to change your people more and more into the image of Christ, for we pray in his name. Amen. Our summer series is coming to a close. Uh, Most likely next week will be our last uh, psalm for the summer, Psalm 63. Um, But here we are in Psalm 62. Probably not the most obscure psalm, but then again, probably not the most familiar either. Now, we've all seen it before. I think in situations made up, think movies, TV shows, plays. We've observed situations that are made up, but we've also observed situations that are for real. What we've participated in, what we've seen up front, up close with our own eyes. What's the situation I'm talking about? It's someone going after someone else. You've seen it. And those around the situation wonder, how long are you just going to stand there before you do something? How long are you going to take it before you fight back? If there's anything that's floating around in our culture these days, it's this idea that you shouldn't just take it. you got to fight back. Now, we are tempted, of course, to take matters into our own hands. I mean, it's, it, it makes sense, doesn't it? Like, if you hit me, what am I going to do? I'm, I'm going to hit you. If you threaten me, I'll threaten you. If you lie about me, I'll lie about you. We've all seen those situations. We've all experienced them. People are looking for a fight. Now, Christianity is a fighting religion, to be sure, but it's the fight of faith. Not for worldly power, nor is it a fight that is to be waged using worldly methods. Rather, it's to be fought with the weapons that God provides and calls us to use, as Paul writes to the church in Ephesus about the spiritual armor that God provides. He writes to them, and of course, he's writing to us. Psalm 62, I believe, will help us when we're tempted to take matters into our own hands. When we're tempted not to wait on God, when we're tempted not to rest in God. 
Now, Psalm 62 in biblical history, uh, we don't know much about the historical context. We don't know about the specific situation that would have caused this Psalm of David to be written. Of course, there, we'll see there's a crisis. Um, he, he goes to God in the midst of the crisis, a typical one we've seen over the last few weeks in these Psalms of David. Um, we don't know the specific situation, but that's good news for us because it's not specific means we can start to map our own lives onto this psalm. One of my uh, professors, the late David Pallison, used to say, don't get frustrated by, by vagueness or generality in Scripture because often that's where you can take your specific situation, what you're going through, and, and put it right there or vice versa, put what Scripture is right onto your situation. So don't be discouraged about the fact that we don't know the historical situation. That's good news. As Pallison would say, you can write your address, your zip code, your phone number on that passage. Now, I wonder, after reading Psalm 62 a number of times and thinking about it, I wonder if Peter, the apostle Peter, may have had Psalm 62 in mind when he wrote his first letter to the church the, the Christians in exile, the Christians suffering for their faith, the Christians that though they came to faith in Christ, life was still hard, difficult. There were people out there hitting them, threatening them, lying about them. Could, could Peter have had Psalm 62 in his mind? Well, think about these two verses that we've heard read a number of times. He writes to the church, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus, the son on earth, in the flesh, waiting on his father, resting in his father, feeling no need to threaten back, no need to punch back. Well, what about the, the place of Psalm 62 in church history? Interestingly, Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century English Baptist pastor in London at the Metropolitan Temple, he referred to Psalm 60, 62 as the only psalm. The only psalm. Now, when you hear the only psalm, is, is like, okay, what about the other 149, Spurgeon? Is that the only one you're paying attention to? No, what does he mean? Well, if you look at verses 1 and 2 and 4 and 5 and 6 and 9, there's a particular, very short, two-letter Hebrew word that shows up. And in our translation that I'm using, the ESV, it, it, it's translated variously, alone, only, and but. But in other translations, you'll see truly, surely, and but yet. In fact, one translation I saw used but yet for all of these. So this psalm is going to draw our attention to faith in Christ alone, only 
faith in Christ. Well, that's a brief look at, at the psalm in biblical history, the psalm in church history. Let's ask ourselves right now, what's the place of Psalm 62 in your life? Have you ever gone to Psalm 62? Have you ever been in a situation where Psalm 62 is the go-to psalm? I hope, if anything, when we finish with Psalm 62, you may now have a better understanding so that when something takes place in your life, maybe in your own heart, that nobody else knows about, you can go to Psalm 62. Indeed, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful, is relevant. Today, we're not gonna make Psalm 62 useful. We're not gonna make it relevant, but hopefully we will discover its usefulness, discover its relevance. Well, join with me as I read Psalm 62. To the choir master, according to Jeduthun, a Psalm of David, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. My fortress, I shall not be shaken. On God rest my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this that power belongs to God and that you got and that to you O Lord belongs steadfast love for you will render to a man according to his work well our approach today to psalm 62 will be to unpack and explore the crisis facing the psalmist the calm confidence the psalm the psalmist possesses and the call the psalmist makes uh, didn't put an outline in But it helped me, and I hope it'll help you. The crisis, the calm confidence, and the call. Well, we're going to begin with the crisis. Of course, nothing new for the Psalms, a crisis situation. And we see that in verses 3 and 4. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering Fence. The on, they only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. David is describing an attack, and he's using the image, various images of an attack, uh, to batter him. It's not the idea of just bruising him, but 
to kill him, to, to murder him. And, and look at this image of a leaning wall, a tottering fence. I think we've all seen it, right? The wall is leaning. It's only a matter of time before it completely falls down. A fence that's in a state of disrepair. It's, it's hanging on. Pretty soon it will be ineffective. The cattle will get out. It's, it's an image of this attack and an attack on people who are down, who are weak. Their, their, their wall, as it were, they themselves are already leaning and the attack is going to push them over. Their fence is already in trouble and it's just going to be broken through. David could have just ended, how long will all of you attack a man? But you know, one of the, one of the things about the Psalms is there's, it's poetry, there's image, it's, it's bringing emotion and intellect together. It's stirring things up. We've all seen the leaning wall. Can you imagine the kind of person that doesn't fix the wall, straighten the wall, but rather does what he can to push the wall over? David here talks about the plans of the enemy. You know, the enemy here, the crisis situation, the the enemy really has one plan. Look at it, verse 4. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. David, of course, as king, is in a high position appointed by God. And throughout the Psalms you've seen, and throughout the historical books, David um, facing crisis after crisis from outside, from his own family, They have one plan, to take him down. Now, you may say, I'm not a king. I'm not in a high position. Oh, Christian, yes, you are. Oh, yes, you are in a high position. Don't forget that. Not a high position, maybe according to the world, but nonetheless in a high position because God has lifted you up. He has brought you from death to life, from the pit to a secure place. And notice what the core of the attack is, you know, the the, the heart of the attack. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Once again, The subject of lies and falsehood comes up here in the Psalms. I want to continue to refer our attention to Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19. I'm beginning to think I need to commit this to memory. Anybody want to join me in that? Can we do it between now and next week? Proverbs 6 16 through 19, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers. Interestingly, six things that the Lord hates Seven are an abomination to him. And if you look at that list carefully, 
There are two that are related. Verse 17, a lying tongue. And verse 19, a false witness who breathes out lies. David is under the attack of falsehood and lies about him, about God. You know, it's interesting when Jesus was talking to some Jews who it says believed in him, but they asked some questions that kind of betray, did they really believe him? We find it in in John chapter uh, 6, I believe. Jesus responds to them and their questions and their accusations by saying, you know, the devil has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. And he refers to Satan, to the devil, as a liar and the father of lies. Jesus draws attention, interestingly, all the way back to Genesis 3. What, why, how did mankind fall? How did they depart from this perfect environment, this perfect situation? They believed a lie. The father of lies spoke. They believed it. And as they say, the rest is history. Fallen history. Again, the core of the attack, lies and falsehood. It's going to be, I think, why... The call is to wait on the Lord, to rest in him. So Psalm 62 shows us the crisis, kind of a very brief description of the crisis. But Psalm 62 also shows us how he faced the crisis. He faces the crisis with calm confidence. And we're going to have to run around to different places in Psalm 62. We're going to be in the first two verses and then verses 5 through 7 and then verses 11 through the first part of verse 12. Um, in other words, there's three sections that I think reveal his calm confidence. There's a description, a command, and the basis for or the foundation of his calm confidence. Let's look at the description found in verses 1 and 2 where David talks about himself. Verses 1 and 2, where David talks about himself. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. My fortress, I shall not be greatly shaken. Did you notice it's very personal? My, 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 five times, and I once. Usually, it's appropriate to say, Don't talk about yourself so much, you know? My favorite pronouns, I, me, my, mine, right? None of us want to be with a person who only thinks about and talks about themselves, but there is an appropriate place, and here is an appropriate place. It's it's appropriate where the Apostle Paul would say, who loved me and gave himself for me, my soul. My salvation, my rock, my salvation, my fortress. Very personal. And what does he say about his soul? Verse 1, waits in silence. In the English Standard Version, that's pretty much a literal translation of, of what we see in the Hebrew. 
soul silence. Some translations uh, work it out like this, finds rest, finds rest. And, and note, it's waits, waits. Um, interestingly, I was preparing the order of worship and I wanted to, to sing, find rest my soul in God alone. Find rest my soul in God alone. That's the hymn, right? It's not in the index of HMA, Hymns Modern and Ancient. Why? Because that's not the title of the hymn. It's my soul finds rest. I was thinking, find rest my soul. I was thinking immediately of what I've got to do. David is thinking immediately of what he's, what he's already doing. What is the situation? And more about that in a moment. And notice, because of who God is, David says, I shall not be greatly shaken. It's, it's important sometimes to pay attention to particular words, and here we see greatly shaken. You know what that's implied? I will be shaken. I will be stirred. But I won't be greatly shaken. I won't be overwhelmingly shaken. I won't be destroyed. So David talks about himself, it's a description, but then there's a command, there's an, it's an imperative where David talks not about himself, but to himself, and we see that in verse 5 and following. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and salvation, my fortress, I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. David is not listening to himself, rather he's talking to himself. This is what Martin Lloyd-Jones says in his magnificent book, Spiritual um, Depression. He says, basically, the Christian far too often listens to himself rather than talking to himself. He's referring specifically to Psalm 42. Is that not true? We're in a tough situation. We, we hear that voice whining to ourselves, complaining to ourselves. And, and, and David is saying, no, no, I've got to talk to myself. Oh, my soul. Oh, my soul. Wait in silence. Rest. In God. Find rest. Notice in the description, it was my soul waits. Here in the command, in the imperative, it's, oh my soul, wait. It's important to see the dynamic between that description and that command, that talking about himself and that talking to himself. But David is not through talking because he continues to talk about God and himself and then we see this instance where he talks to God and it forms the basis of or the foundation for his calm confidence. Let's look at verse 11 through the first part of verse 12. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. 
God has spoken. He's revealed himself in his word. David is the recipient of the word of God that's, that's already been spoken and he's heard it. It's, he's just drawing attention that God has to speak and we have to listen. And what is the word that David gets? It's really two things about God. God is powerful and God is loving. Notice, power belongs to God. He, he's heard that. And that you, O Lord, to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. Interesting. It, it's receiving the word and then it's talking the word back to God. And, and there's this beautiful combination of God being powerful and God being loving. Every so often we sing the hymn, Come Ye Sinners, and at the end of verse 1, it's got this powerful line, He is able, He is able, He is willing, doubt no more. We've all known people who are able and powerful, they have no love, and their ability hurts and harms. We know some people who, who are willing, and, and the most sympathetic, empathetic, people but they really have no power to to do something god is willing god is able to keep his covenant promises he is not only willing he's loving he is able he's powerful whenever you and i struggle with a situation Keep in mind that unlike humans, unlike man, men and women, God is both willing and able. It can be in one way summarized in that great mealtime, mealtime prayer. God is great and God is good. He is powerful and he's loving and David recognizes that. That's the foundation. That's the basis for his calm confidence. So we've seen that the psalmist talks to himself about both who he is and what he needs to do. His soul waits. His soul needs to wait. We've also seen that he speaks to God. Now in Psalm 62 we see also that he speaks to others because his personal experience is going to lead to public exhortation. And we see that in verses 8 through 10. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion, set no vain hate, hope on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. What's, what's the first part of his call? Trust God. Trust in him at all times, O oh people. Do you all like to look at people's license plates? You know, when you're waiting for the light to change and, and you see a personalized license plate, right? It's always interesting in my mind. What are they trying to say? You might even see, you know, 
the alumni of a particular school or some military veteran, but often you see, maybe in Kentucky, I don't know if every state does it, but you see these words, in God we trust. I've been using that these days to ask myself, do I trust God? In God we trust. Is it just a few words on a license plate? Or is it this calling to trust in him at all times, oh people? Something that can't be just put on a license plate and then forgotten about. I wonder if people's driving habits and their work practices and their relationships betray their license plate. Of course, the life of any Christian in various ways betrays the statement that they trust God. But here is the call. It's that Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your path. That's what David is saying. Trust in him at all times. Not only trust in him, but pray to him. Pray to God. Pour out your heart before him. Trust and pray. It's a call to prayer. Prayer. It's Hannah in 1 Samuel being accused of being drunk with wine. And what did she say? No. I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. I've been praying. It's Jeremiah, the author of Lamentations. We read in Lamentations 1, arise, cry out in the night. At the beginning of the night, watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Prayer likened to pouring out water. Personal rest in God is found in the place of prayer. As we looked at pretty intensely a few months ago in peace under pressure, let your request be made known to God. Pour out your heart to him in prayer. Christian, are you afraid? Are you embarrassed to own up to weakness inability, finiteness. You know, this verse and this verse in and of itself should, should give you the, the green light to pray and ask God for help. Pour out your heart before Him. I don't know if that's a good description of my prayer life. Maybe mine's more like Take a little, I don't know, shot glass, pour a little out. It's the idea of pouring out the pitcher, pouring out to God. Why? Why? What's the reason, the foundation for both this trust and prayer? Look at the end of verse 8. God is a refuge for us. God is our refuge. It's an ongoing theme in the Psalms. We even sing a, a, a song, God is our refuge. Over and over and over again, we have confidence because God is our refuge. But David says here, not only trust God, but don't trust man. We see that in verses 9 and 10. In other words, don't trust human power or resources. 
um, very tempting. If I get power, if I have more, then I'll be okay. Then we'll be okay. No. David is saying, don't trust other people. Why? Because whether they're high or low, they're temporary. They're not weighty like God. They will disappear. The word is vanity. It's breath. It's what we saw in Ecclesiastes. Doesn't last. Now, there is appropriate trust in people, right? Otherwise, there's no friendship, no marriage, no business, no relationship of any kind. It's not talking about normal, human, good kind of trust. It's called, it's about ultimate trust and only trust and trusting alone. David doesn't let the reader off the hook. Don't even, don't even trust other people. Don't trust yourself. Look at verse 10. Put no trust... When you are tempted to extort, set no vain hope on robbery when you think that's the only way to get what you need. He's telling us if God provides riches, don't trust in them, don't set your heart on them. So we've considered his crisis, his calm confidence, and his call. And we're going to conclude by looking at the conclusion of the psalmist, the location where he ends his journey. You see, he lands his plane on a statement about what God will do. Look at the end of Psalm 62. Look at the second half of verse 12. For you, speaking of God, the Lord... For you will render to a man according to his work. You know, we've said a number of times that the Psalms express the divine human encounter, the relationship between God and man. And based on this statement, a way to summarize the relationship between God and man is like this. Do this and you'll get that. Do this. And you'll get that, that relationship, that, uh, that, that how God and man are related. And our confession of faith in chapter 7, entitled, Of God's Covenant with Man, uh, of God's Relationship with Man, is very helpful. And I'm just going to read a couple of sentences from that chapter. Of God's covenant with man, quote, the first covenant made with man was a covenant of works. It goes on to say, man, by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace. Now, some of you may be like, oh, covenant of works, covenant of grace, um, isn't that theological well yes it is but it's extremely practical extremely important you know a lot of churches are named trinity presbyterian a lot of churches are named covenant presbyterian it's it's important because you see according to his work according to the work of man under the covenant of works that first covenant it was very simple do this and live do this and live I mean, we all want to know what we need to do, right? God laid it out. Do this and you'll live. 
But we know that man blew it, right? He didn't do it. And the sentence of death was pronounced. But God, He's gracious and merciful, right? Steadfast love, faithfulness. God makes that second covenant, a covenant of grace. And the way I like to think of the covenant of grace is this, believe this and live. Believe this and live. Now, how can I say that? Well, we've got to go to John 6. Jesus is asked a question. By the way, a great Bible study is to just look in the Gospels at the questions Jesus is asked and the answers he gives. The question is this, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Did you hear that? What must we do? And Jesus says, you know what? Here's what you need to do. You need to believe. Believe in the one he has sent. Who did God send? Well, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. And God the Father did render to Jesus or rewarded Jesus according to his work. And what kind of work did Jesus do? He did some works of substitution and sacrifice. He, he had a life of perfect obedience and he had an atoning sacrificial death for sin. You see, when, when David says, trust in him at all times, O people, it's a call looking forward to trust in the Son, to trust in the Messiah, to trust in the Savior, to trust in the one God has sent. Because the object of our faith, of course, is Jesus. It's faith in Him. It's trust in Him. It's not ultimate faith. It's not only trusting in ourselves or other people. It's faith in Christ alone. It's faith in Christ only. Well, what is faith? It's the free gift of God. It's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And you know what scripture says about faith? And without faith, it is impossible to please him. The early church father, Augustine, in his confessions said this, and I'm translating it into normal English for all of us. Augustine, who wasn't born a Christian, but he was born again as a Christian, said this, You have made us for yourself, and restless is our heart until it rests in you. You have made us for yourself, O God, and restless is our heart until it rests in you, until your soul waits. So ask yourself this question as we finish up. Has your soul found rest in God? Is your soul waiting on God in silence? Interestingly, the silence is not necessarily what we think. It's going to God in prayer. 
It's talking to yourself. It's knowing his promises, believing his promises, reminding yourself of his promises. Resting. You know, a soul at rest waits on God and silences all the distractions and the lies. A soul that is still is a soul that trusts God, as we will be reminded in a few moments in Psalm. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Psalm 62. We thank you, Father, that your word is indeed useful, profitable. Your word is a light and a lamp. Your word, Father, cuts us to the core, exposes our heart, wounds us, heals us, knocks us down, lifts us up, uncovers us, clothes us. Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, we pray that the truths expressed and, and, and found here in Psalm 62 would work our way into our hearts so that we could both acknowledge that to the best of our ability, our soul waits in silence, finds rest in you, but also we are continually reminding ourselves, calling ourselves to find rest in you, to wait in silence before you. Oh God, be pleased to grow your people in the grace and knowledge of Jesus in whom our rest is found. Amen. We respond by seeing here number 111, still my soul.